the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Hey, today I want to talk to you about something that you'll probably hear me revisit quite a bit over the next few years. And that one of my greatest concerns for us as a people, us as a church, is that in this season of our lives, is in this season as a church, that, that, that it would be very easy for us to begin to coast. And it'd be very easy for us to, to begin to kind of settle in and to kind of be okay with what is. And, and the, the data says that, that churches that reach about our age, about 15 years old, churches that reach about our size, churches that, that move into to new facilities, many times what happens in all of those occasions is churches just to kind of begin to coast and they, they stop growing. In fact, 85% of the churches in America ha- have either plateaued, where they're just staying the same size year after year, or they're in decline. They're just getting smaller year after year. And, and so I'm very passionate that, that, that in the coming years, that, that we be and become and do all that God would have us do. And, and so I wanna talk to you, and you're gonna hear me uh, revisit this in the coming years. I wanna talk to you a little bit today about what I would call gospel urgency. And we're gonna look at two of my favorite stories in the Bible, two very well-known stories in the Bible. And I wanna talk to you a little bit about what does it look like to live a life and to be a church of gospel urgency? And then what does it look like to do the opposite? What does it look like to live a life or be a church of what I would call gospel apathy? And so if you have your Bibles, go over to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two, verse one, it says a few days later, when Jesus again entered into Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word of so Jesus is in a house, probably found the largest house in the area available to them, and it's totally packed. There's no extra space inside, and there's even a bunch of people outside just doing their best to hear Jesus teach. It was packed out. And then some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by the four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the, the, mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Here's the, your big point I want you to get today. Gospel urgency. When I have a life of gospel urgency, what it means is, is that I will do anything short of sin for people to meet Jesus. And so that's what's happening here. We got these four friends. They've got a paralyzed, they've got a paralyzed friend. We don't know how long they've been paralyzed. We don't know if, 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 if to the level of paralyzation that this man was experiencing, but we know he couldn't walk. And so this man's paralyzed, and, and so what they do is they carry him. Now, we don't know how far away he lived. See, I, I think one of the, there's a ton of upsides of growing up in the church. I did, ton of upsides. But I think one of the downsides of just growing up or, or around the things of God is these stories that are absolutely remarkable. If you've known them since you were three years old, you're like, oh yeah, it's the story of the guy, the, pe- the people that carry their friend to Jesus. And, uh, but it's like if you put yourself there, so we don't know how big that guy was. All of us have got friends 
that if it was like, hey, me and three other guys are gonna carry this person across town, you've got friends, you're like, sure, I'd be willing to do that. And then you've, maybe you've got friends like me that, that, that are larger than other friends. And you're like, Dave, I'd be willing to carry you across the room, but I ain't carrying you across town. We just don't know how big this friend was. We don't know if he lived one block over or 10 blocks over. We don't know how long of a carry this was. And so they show up with their friend. It's a big enough deal, the fact that they carried him there. They get there, and because they're carrying their buddy, they get there after everybody else gets there. And there's no, there's no way to get in. Now, in every group, there's that one friend who's, who's got the crazy idea. The same guy that said, hey, let's carry, let's carry Bob across town. I'll take him to, to Jesus, this healer guy. The same guy that had that idea, when they get there, everyone else is like, oh, what bummer, I guess it's too late. I guess we're gonna have to go home. The same guy that had the idea of let's carry him across town said, well, let's just climb up on the roof. And then they said, and then do what? Well, and then we'll just rip open a hole in the roof. If you look at the original language, it actually, the way it actually reads is, is they unroofed the roof. Now, if you were in Texas, inside someone's house, and, some, and there begins to be noise on the roof, someone's going up there with a gun. That guy's about to get shot dead. And so they climb up on this roof and just start ripping open a giant hole in the roof big enough to drop this man on his Matt. What we see is this. We see this urgency where these friends said there ain't nothing that's going to keep us from bringing our friend to Jesus. It's this gospel urgency thing that says I'm willing to do anything short of sin to, to bring people to meet Jesus. And so what gospel urgency for a person will look like and what gospel urgency for a church will look like is gospel urgency is going to lead to some hard work. Gospel urgency is gonna, there, there's no doubt that each of those four guys had something they could have done that day easier than let's carry our friend cross town and let's rip open a roof. And probably the way the day ends is they're putting a roof back on that house. <laughs> Whoever owned that house probably went and said, hey, I think it's great your friend got healed, but hey, I need, it's supposed to rain tomorrow. I need a roof. These friends, they said, I'm willing to do pretty much anything for my friend to meet Jesus. Gospel urgency will lead to some hard work. Gospel urgency will get messy. These guys, can you imagine being, if we're just in church right now and our, our roof's just made of metal, I guess, I didn't put it on, but, but the roofs then, they were, made, they were thicker because they didn't have all the water sealant that we had today, so they were thicker. And so there's a, oftentimes it'd be a layer of mud that would become sort of like cement and then some straw and some others. It was a big, thick mess. And so you're in that service and there's just roof stuff dropping on you. I mean, it's all kinds of messy and, and it was a giant risk for them to do that. First of all, they didn't know how Jesus was gonna respond. I mean, if somewhere, a lot of times, it's just a weird preacher thought, I guess. About every six, eight weeks, I think to myself, you know, Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered, I'm there. A phrase of mine is wherever three or 400 are there, there's a crazy person. It's just true, right? Statistically. This guy's like, hey, it's me. And so, uh, all right. And if you can't spot him, it is you, right? And so, uh, so occasionally, I'll think the church I grew up in in Dallas, giant church downtown Dallas, and 
I, found, I did not love church as a kid, super bored. And, but we're right in downtown Dallas, and about twice a year, just a crazy person would just come in and just start yelling. And as a child, that was my favorite Sunday of the year. <laughs> I'm like, crazy stuff's happening. One church wasn't boring today. And, and then people would remove the crazy, so they continued church. And so occasionally, a few times a year, I'm like, what are we gonna do if someone just comes in and just starts yelling and acting crazy and then Scott Rhoda and the team will just escort them out and, and I, so I think it through, right? Pray for me. And so, um, but these people had no idea. Can you imagine interrupting a sermon of Jesus's? Well, first of all, you got the disciples who, no doubt when they start, all the ruckus starts happening on that roof, Peter runs up there. What are y'all doing up here? Jesus is trying to teach. They don't know if Jesus is gonna send them away. They have no idea how Jesus is gonna respond. They have no idea how this big crowd of people that are in there, that got there on time, are, are gonna respond. They have no idea how the homeowner's gonna respond. There's this risk that is incalculable. So they do this hard thing, and they do a risky thing. Here's the truth. Gospel urgency oftentimes leads to hard work and risky behavior. When was the last time that you did something risky for the sake of the gospel? When was the last time you thought, man, I think God wants me to do a thing. I'm not quite sure how it's gonna work out. I don't know what they're gonna say. I don't know, if this, I don't know what th this other person's gonna do. I think this is what I'm supposed to go, supposed to do, but there's about three ways this turns out bad, one way this turns out good, but I'm, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna take a risk. When was the last time you did something like that? See, gospel urgency, that, that urgency that says, I'm willing to do anything short of sin that people might meet Jesus. If that means I'm carrying my friend across town, climbing up a roof, roof digging up a hole on a roof, and then I don't even know what's gonna happen next. I'm willing to do that hard work. I'm willing to take that big risk. It's gonna get messy. It might even be embarrassing. They might, even, they might have called the authorities on these people, said, hey, Destruction of property, they're ripping up on our roof, take them away. It was, it was a big gamble, but they, they said, I'm willing to do about anything, sort of sin, that this guy would meet Jesus. That's what gospel urgency looks like. And really what it looks like is the attitude of Jesus, who literally said, I'm, I'm willing to do anything that these people might come into right relationship with my father, if it means leaving the wonders and glories of heaven, laying aside the prerogatives of deity to be born in a stinky stable as, as, as a little baby that would quickly become a refugee, be, being chased by a king who wanted to kill him even as a baby. If it means going through life, people thinking that you're crazy, even your own family, if it, end, if it means ending up dying the most brutal, gruesome death imaginable, absorbing the wrath deserved for all of the sins of all of humanity, Jesus said, there's nothing I'm not willing to do that people would be right with God. And you said, it's easy for us to say, well, that's Jesus and he's Jesus and I ain't Jesus. And so that doesn't apply to me. We see a similar attitude in the apostle Paul, Romans chapter nine, verse three, where Paul's talking about how much he wants the Jews who, who weren't accepting Christ to come into right relationship with him. And, and, to the, and, Peter, and Paul says this, he says, even if I had to go to hell, so they could go to heaven. He says, I think I'd do it. And what that is there is it's this extreme gospel urgency that says I'm about willing to do about anything sort of sin for people to come into relationship with God. Here's the second truth. Gospel urgency makes me a partner in Jesus's work in their life. Look here, verse five. When Jesus saw 
their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now what's fascinating there is a few things. One, Jesus doesn't say when he saw the paralyzed guy's faith. He, he said, oh, son, your sins are forgiven. He says when he saw there, we don't know for sure if he's just talking about the friends, the four guys, or if he's talking about the friends and the guy on the mat, the five guys. But it says we know he's talking about the friends. What Jesus says when he saw, when he says when he saw their faith, we talked last week about doubt and how sometimes we have to borrow someone's faith. Sometimes we have to lend someone some faith. What these friends here are doing is they're saying, we believe so much that if you can just get face to face with this guy, Jesus, everything's gonna change for you. That if we gotta get up early, if we gotta haul you across town, climb up a roof, cut up in a hole, he says, we're, we're willing to do that. And so what Jesus, he says, when he saw their faith, what he saw is he saw their actions that demonstrated their faith. They so believed that if we could get this guy with Jesus, everything's gonna change. It's this incredible moment. And so what happens is they become a partner and Jesus is working their life. It becomes, it's a unique thing where it's like you got the guy on the mat, you got Jesus and you got these four friends and, and, and Jesus takes it all and, and he does this incredible miracle. He says, your sins are forgiven. I'll heal him in a little bit. Here's the principle that we see here. These guys do whatever they can do. And then Jesus does what only he can do. If those guys could have, could have just healed him in their own power, they'd have just healed him at his house. Saved himself a big day of hauling people around. If, if, but they knew, hey, what we can do is we can, we can put him on a mat, we can carry him, we can bust open a roof, I guess, never done it, but how hard can it be? They did whatever they could do, and then Jesus steps in and does the thing only he can do. See, here's the thing. We love people in Jesus' name, but only Jesus can really soften people's hearts. We share the gospel with people, but only Jesus can save. We can pray for people, but only God can, can heal. It's, it's this, we do the things that, that we can do. We do whatever we can do. We say, hey, we're all in. Whatever it takes, short of sin, I'm willing to do it, but I'm gonna do whatever I can do. And then what God's gonna do is he's gonna do what only he can do. It's, we become partners in God's activity in people's lives. We become partners in God's activity in this city. We become partners with God's activity in the world. Here's the third truth. Truth. Gospel urgency takes advantage of the opportunities given. See, the primary dangers that we face living in suburban America is the primary values of the culture are safety, security, comfort, and convenience. Safety, security, comfort, and convenience. And so if these four guys, if their primary goals were safety, security, comfort, and convenience. Here's what they'd have done. They'd have said to somebody, they'd have said to one of their guys, hey, you run ahead. I hear Jesus is showing up over at Bob's house. You run over there. And hey, save us, save us five seats. Save us middle seats so we don't have to turn our heads and get a crick in our neck. We want to be comfortable. And then when the scout got there and saw that it was super crowded, he'd have run back and said, hey guys, I guess we can't do it today. It's packed out. No seats left, can't even stand in there. The whole patio's full. I guess, I guess this isn't our day. I guess, I guess he's just gonna stay paralyzed. Maybe, maybe Jesus will be there again tomorrow. 
Or maybe Jesus, he tends to come back about once a month. Maybe he'll be there next month. Today's not our day. I guess we'll check in tomorrow or next month. Oh, it's just not our day. And it would have been easy for them to say, oh, well, we, we wanted to help you. I'm sorry that you're not getting healed today. But what they did is they said, you know what? We don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. And we don't know what's gonna happen next month. We're gonna take advantage of the opportunity today. It's what, it's what Paul tells us, Ephesians 5, 15. He says, very, very, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. See, gospel urgency what it does is, is it recognizes that tomorrow's not guaranteed, that, that, that life is like a vapor, the Bible says. And so what gospel urgency does when it thinks about its willingness to do anything short of sin, to bring someone to meet Jesus, what they recognize is, is I don't know how long he, they've got. We don't know the condition of this paralyzed guy. It, they they might have had a sense of, man, if he doesn't get healed, he, he may not still be alive next month. It might have been because of something obvious or it might just have been an awareness of we've got this moment right now, but whenever we think about gospel urgency, there's an awareness of we don't know how long they've got and an awareness of I don't know how long I've got. And, and so what gospel urgency does is it recognizes God's given me today and God's given me the opportunities of today. And so I'm gonna maximize them. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bank on tomorrow's opportunities. I'm gonna recognize God's given me opportunities and obligations today. It recognizes that life is short. Sometimes I think about just trying to kind of because it's so easy, and I fall into it. It's so easy to, you know, we'll be dreaming about what's God gonna do at Life Church in two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, and there's a role for that, and, and, and it's good to have, have some of that, but, but it, it's also good to recognize we don't know if we've got five years, and we don't know if we've got 10 years. And so if we knew that, that instead of thinking about the next 20 years, what, what, what might God do in, if we only had two years left? How would we approach it either, either personally or as a church? If we said, man, we've got two years as a church to make the biggest impact on Northern Nevada as possible, or we've got five years to make the biggest impact in Northern Nevada as possible. What kind of urgency would that create? Gospel urgency takes advantage of the opportunities given. But see, there's another story I wanna show you. See, what we see at the end of this story is these religious people still don't get it. We see at the end of this story, these religious people, he says, they were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, there's people that join in what God's doing in the world, and then there's other people that sit back and criticize the people doing stuff. And these religious people, what they're doing is they're revealing that they don't have gospel urgency. What they've got is a thing called gospel apathy. See, these same religious people were hanging out. We see them in Luke 15. Jesus is hanging out with all these sinful people, prostitutes, tax collectors. Luke 15, one, these same people. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, very likely some of the same people we see in Mark 2, definitely the same group of people. They muttered and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now what they're revealing is they're revealing their gospel apathy. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus then tells them three stories. If you've been in church long, you know these stories. Jesus tells them three stories to all illustrate the same point. 
See, the thing is, if Jesus gives, tells one story, he's like, I mean, it's Jesus talking. He didn't waste his words. It's clearly important. If Jesus tells the same story with the same message right after another, but two times, he's saying, hey, I really need you to get this, and I know you're not smart enough to get it the first time. Here's two stories. But if Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you three stories all with the same point, because I want you to know that pretty much nothing's more important than this. So these religious people are like, man, why is Jesus hanging around with, with sinful people? And so Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. He says, there was a shepherd. He had 100 sheep. One got lost. So the shepherd left the 99, went and found the one. He was so happy. He found it there. He celebrated, had a big party. He says, well, that's how it is in heaven when one person that's far from God comes into right relationship with God. And then he tells another story. He says, the second story, he says, there was a lady, she had 10 coins. It very well may have represented her entirety of, of, her, of all of her wealth, all of her net worth was in those 10 coins. It says she lost one. And then she searched across the whole house. We've all had that moment in our house where we lost something valuable, didn't know where it was. We start looking places we've never looked. We start looking under couch cushions and looking at all, all the stuff. And, and you end up finding other stuff. Sometimes you don't find the thing you're looking for. But this lady, she finds the one coin. And it says that she celebrates, throws a big party. And Jesus says, that's how it is when one person one is far from God comes into right relationship with God. And then he tells a third story. Now, with each of these stories, Jesus is upping the ante in two ways. One is, is, is he's upping the ante numerically. First, it starts out as one out of 100. You got 100 to something, you lose one. It's a bummer, but not the end of the world. And then, he's, and then he takes it from one out of 100 to one out of 10. One, losing one out of 10 is something's a bigger deal than losing one out of 100. And then he takes the last story. He says there's a, there a father. He had two sons. Now it's one out of two. And, and each time, it, what happens is he, as he ups the ante numerically, one out of 100 to one out of 10 to one out of two. But, it, but then each time, he gets closer to our hearts. He, he says, hey, there's this guy. He's a shepherd. He loses one out of 100. He might lose his job because of this. But Jesus knows most of us that the biggest reason we have jobs is because we need some money. So we go from the value of our job to now the value of money, a little bit closer to our hearts. He says one out of 100 about the job, one out of 10 on the money. But Jesus knows any decent person, the reason the money matters is they wanna take care of their family, the thing closest to their heart. So it's each story, he ups the ante, he ends up there's one out of two and this, this man comes up to his father and says, hey, can I get my share of the inheritance? He's the younger brother in the ancient world. He'd be entitled to a third of his inheritance. And, and so the father now, in, any, in the ancient world, if a son came up to the dad and said, hey, can I just go? I know you're still alive and all. I mean, the same thing that might happen with your dad. Hey, I know you're still alive and all, but can I go ahead and get the money? That usually goes terribly. In the ancient world, that would have been the, the greatest affront. What the son was saying is, I care more about your money and your stuff than I do you. And any, any, any ancient Middle Eastern patriarch, what he would have done is he would have said, not, not only can you not have the money, you're no longer my son. I never want to see you again. But this patriarch responded differently and, and gave him his share of the inheritance. He goes off, he blows the money, ends up in a pig pen. He comes to his senses, he realizes, he th says, I think my father's servants live better than this. So he says, I'm gonna go back. That's where we catch up with this story here. Middle of Luke 15, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. Well, the picture we see here is like every day that dad looked off in the distance in the same direction that his son had left before he looked off in the distance as hoping he was coming back. He sees him in the distance and he runs to him. In the ancient world, a Middle Eastern patriarch would never be caught running. He'd be wearing this long robe. And so now visually he's like having to hike up his robe. He's trying to run. Kids ran. Sometimes women ran. The patriarch never ran. He runs out to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. What we see is the father's embracing the son before the son ever gives him the spiel of all the stuff. Threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, which would have been the father's robe. Bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. In the ancient world, you hardly ever ate meat. It was so expensive. If you did eat meat, you'd eat a sheep, maybe a goat. You, you, you only killed the fatted calf on the biggest of celebrations. It would have been highly unusual. What we see is this dad's about to throw the biggest party that town's ever seen. This is the happiest day in that dad's life. He says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found. So they began to celebrate See, what Jesus is doing here is he's telling three stories to these religious people who have gospel apathy, and the three stories are all to illustrate the same thing, that people far from God matter more to the Father than we could ever wrap our heads around. But what gospel apathy does is it loses sight of that. What gospel apathy does is it, is it begins to make everything about me. See, the, the primary character in this story is definitely the Father, but the secondary character in this story is really not the younger brother. The secondary story, uh, the secondary character in this story is the older brother. When Jesus is telling these stories to these religious leaders, he puts them in the story. They are the older brother. They're these people that don't have gospel urgency. They've got gospel apathy. Look here, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? He says, your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fatted calf. Now here's what that older brother's thinking. He says, man, my younger brother's already got his share of the inheritance. Every dollar dad spends, he's spending my money. So he hears that he just took this fatted calf, that that, that older brother says, man, that's a part of my wealth. That's a part of my inheritance. He says, your father's killed the fatted calf because he's been back, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Anyone that's got kids between like five and 11 years old has had that moment where you've got company and your kids have decided to act a fool. <laughs> and you've pulled them aside and said, hey, I need you to quit it. We got people over. And they ain't getting the picture. And, and, and so then they decide that they're gonna go outside because now they've gotten disciplined and now they're mad, they're outside and they're throwing a big pity party and big fit outside. And, and so you have to say to your guests, excuse me, I've gotta go outside and beat my kids. <laughs> Man, this dad's having the biggest party of his life, the happiest day of his life. And his son, that's not six years old, not 11 years old, probably 26 or 36 years old, is out there just throwing a fit, ruining the party to where dad has to say to his guests, hey, I know we're having the biggest party of our life, but I gotta go over here and mess with that fool. It's embarrassing, it's humiliating. And then the, dad, and then the father, the son says to the father, the father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, he says, look, 
Now, if you read it, it's a disrespectful address. He doesn't say, hey, dad, this whole thing has got me confused and upset and angry. What he says is he says, look, you, like, like he thinks his dad's made the biggest mistake of his life. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I don't know about you, those words out of your child saying, I've been slaving for you, is gonna lead to a longer conversation. <laughs> Let's talk about slavery. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Religious people always overestimate their own goodness. Yet you never gave me even a young goat. Dad, you took him and his friends to Disneyland, you never even took me and my friends to Chuck E. Cheese. Now he's underestimating the goodness of the father to him. He's making it all about him. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, religious people always think the best about their own actions and the worst about others. He wasn't with his brother. He doesn't know what level of stupidness he engaged in. Who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fatted calf for him. Well, see, what gospel apathy does is it makes everything about me. And, what, and that, that happens in churches where people are, it begins to be, well, how comfortable can we make it for us? And if we give that money to those missionaries, then are we gonna have enough to do our stuff for all the stuff we like? And, and, and it happens in churches where it's like, this is mostly about me and my entertainment and, and, and all the stuff for me and how comfortable can I make it for myself and how great can it be for us? And, and gospel apathy, it makes it all about, that's older brothers making it all about him. And we just gotta fight against that. You might have seen some of the construction out there where we're putting in some cornhole pits and some bocce pits in the months to come. If the ship, shipping strike will stop on the West Coast, we'll finally get a big playground that we're gonna put in over there. Lord willing, next year, we're gonna put in a cool splash park over there. And I just want you to know, that stuff's not mostly for you. I mean, if we see you there, we're not gonna call the cops. And we'll have some church stuff there. We'll hang out and have some barbecues there. But that, well, the reason we're building that is mostly, like 95% for everyone out there, for everyone that's not in this room yet. It's for, it's... just got to fight against the instinct in our, personal, in our personal lives and as a church about making it all about us. This older brother makes this the happiest day in his father's life, the happiest day in his father's life. This older brother says, well, what about me? He makes it all about him. Here's the third thing. We're done. Gospel apathy loses sight of what's at stake. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What Jesus is saying, because those, those people that are listening to Jesus tell the story, don't under, if they're any kind of listening, they understand this older brother is these religious people who were saying, why is Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Why isn't he hanging out with people like us that have got it all together and know all the right answers? And, and, and Jesus tells these three stories all to end on this moment where this father gets his son back and he said, the reason we're celebrating is I thought he was 
dead, but he's alive. He was lost, but he's found. What, what Jesus is saying is he's saying to these religious people, you have such gospel apathy that you have no concept of what's at stake. Here's the truth. I've been in church since I was a kid, from birth. Might have been conceived in a church. I'm just kidding. And so um, <laughs> and, uh, I had a weird moment last service. I thought I could get through this one and not, but I, my bad. Had to someone escort this man out. And so, uh, um, and listen, our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation, they may have talked about hell too much, but we're probably guilty of not thinking about it enough. And so what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders as he says, you guys don't understand what's at stake. The stakes are high. This is life or death. The fact that, that we're in this area where half a million people live and 450,000 just say, yeah, I'm, I'm not a part of a church. I don't consider myself a, a, a follower of, of Jesus. The, the stakes are high and, and that life is short and eternity is real. And Jesus makes the difference. And so gospel apathy, they say, it's about me, it's about my safety, and if I have to do that, it's gonna put me out of my comfort zone. And, it, and if I have to do that, it's gonna be inconvenient. And if I have to do that, I'm gonna work a little harder than I wanted to, and it might turn out weird. And I, It's about my safety, security, comfort, convenience, and playing it safe and making it all about me. But what gospel urgency says, is it says, I'm willing, because people far from God matter more than we could ever possibly imagine. And, I, and I'm willing to, to maximize this opportunity because tomorrow is not guaranteed. And I'm, and I'm willing because eternity is real. And Jesus makes the difference. I'm willing to do anything short of sin that people might meet Jesus. Here's the truth. All of us can find ourselves in these stories, these two beautiful stories. Maybe you're most like those friends. Maybe you'd say, hey, I think I'm like those friends. I think I'm, I think I'm like those friends. I really am living with gospel urgency, this, this real true willingness to do pretty much anything short of sin that people might meet Jesus. And, and hey, listen, if that's true, if that's you, I celebrate that. 50-50 shot if that's really true, if you think it is, or you might just be relig religious and self-righteous and prideful and delusional. But if it is true, Chuckle at the right moments, it doesn't feel quite as mean. And so uh, this morning I was picking up my kids. Normally my, Claire brings all the kids to church. I'd tell, go take an hour and pray and kind of look over all the stuff. But Claire's car is in the, van, in, the, in the shop and has been for 30 days and pray for certain dealerships in town. Um, <laughs> but uh, the rental we have doesn't seat seven and Pray for a certain rental car place in town. And so it's a hard life we're living. And so, uh, and so anyway, so I'm going to pick up a couple of the kids for church. I call Hannah. Because like, at this point, we're cutting down or I need to get here. So I call her up from the driveway and say, Hannah, I need you to come to this car right now. Said it just like that. Wasn't mad. She comes to the car and says, Dad, why are you mad? And I'm like, I'm just urgent. I'm like Kanye on his uh, Christian album where he says, 
I'm not mad, I'm just focused. And I don't want us to get mad, but I do want us to stay focused. A willingness to do pretty much anything short of sin that people might meet Jesus. Maybe you find yourself in this story Maybe you find yourself most like the younger brother or the guy in the mat. Maybe you say, man, I I just need to come to Jesus. And after service, there'll be people that'd be happy to talk to you here at the front about that. But I imagine that most of the time, many of us fall into being like that older brother or like those religious folks, just falling into some gospel apathy, losing sight of what's at stake, forgetting how much people matter to God, making it mostly about Let me pray with you. I imagine lots of us, just because of the culture we live in, it's so easy to lose sight of what's at stake. It's so easy to lose sight of the heart of God. It's so easy to make it mostly about us. It's so easy to just think that my primary goal in life is to make life safe and easy. And maybe just the quietness of your heart, maybe you just say, God, God, would you forgive me for falling into this gospel apathy thing? God, by your spirit, would you do a work in my heart to create a greater sense of urgency that, that the things that you care about and the people that you care about that my heart would realign. God, that I'd have a, have a greater sense of just how much people far from you matter to you. And that have a greater sense of what's at stake. And that have a greater sense that my window of opportunity, I don't know if it's five minutes or 50 years, but God, would you help me to make the most of every opportunity? Even if it means I'm gonna work a little harder than I thought. Even if it means I'm gonna take some more risks than I thought I was gonna take. Even if I'm not sure how it's all gonna pan out. God, would you create that spirit in us, in us individually, in us as a church that we're saying, you know what, I'm willing to do pretty much anything short of sin that people would meet Jesus. God, we thank you for Jesus who just models that who went all in, laying down his life that we might become your children. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this, and we'll see you soon.